Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In the fall of 1988, a little-known artist who had already won five Grammys as a jazz singer, made pop music history when he released a song that goes like this. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note by note. But don't worry. Be happy. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. But don't worry, be happy. Oh, and then there's that unforgettable hook. It's just a simple... I know, you'll thank me later this week when that song is in your head still. Well, in an era when hair metal bands and synthesizers ruled, jazz singer Bobby McFerrin scored the first ever a cappella song to reach number one on the Billboard Top 100. Don't Worry, Be Happy was an expression made popular by an Indian mystic named Meher Baba, who passed away in 1969. After his death, the expression gained popularity on inspirational cards and posters in the remainder of the 20th century. McFerrin happened to see the expression on a poster at a friend's apartment and thought to himself, you know, that's a pretty neat philosophy in four words. And so he created what one music journalist calls, quote, possibly the sunniest song about survival ever written. He tosses out scenarios straight from the blues. No girlfriend, late for rent no cash, and smashes them with optimism, end quote. The one-hit wonder resonated so much with American listeners that at the time, Don't Worry, Be Happy earned McFerrin three more Grammy Awards for pop vocal performance, record of the year, and song of the year. I have a quick funny story to tell you about um, this song because I'm reminded of it every time I hear the song uh, and how this song impacted my life. A year after Don't Worry, Be Happy came out, uh, I was, it was still getting significant airplay on the radio. And the song had become part of our vernacular for at least a couple of years where it was a joke. People would sing it and joke about it. It had been mocked on TV. Well, on a Friday afternoon in the fall of 1989, uh, myself and two football teammates piled into a car, drove over to a local restaurant after school for our team's traditional pregame meal. Well, after dinner, myself and Shane and Mike, who owned the car, we got back into Mike's car and we started our journey back to the locker room at school where we would get dressed and for the game and get on the team bus and head over to the stadium. Well, uh, we'd had a pep rally earlier that day. 
the team wore their jerseys to school. Uh, the cheerleaders made signs. Uh, the sun was out. The temperature was cool. The windows were down, and Mike's car radio was turned up loud. And then it happened. Don't worry. Be happy came on the radio. So as we were driving, we all started singing the song loudly, and we're all dancing, and we're testosterone-filled teenagers, and we're yelling, and out the window making a bunch of noise, being silly. And when the chorus comes on, our driver, Mike, momentarily takes his eyes off the road to shout, Don't worry, be happy! Woo! And while he momentarily turned his eyes off the road, the car in front of us stopped to make a left-hand turn. Shane and I yelled, Mike, look out! <laughs> Mike slams on the brakes, tires squeal, and the sound of crunching steel interrupts our song as we rear in that vehicle at about 30 miles per hour. Thankfully, we weren't going all that fast, and we all had our seatbelts on. But immediately after impact, everything stops and becomes silent. Except, don't worry, be happy, it's still playing on the radio. <laughs> so there we are. We've stopped singing, the car stopped moving, the driver in front of us is getting out of their car, and all you can hear is, And so, after we gather our thoughts, or gather ourselves for a few seconds, Shane smiles, and he says, Hey, Mike, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> to which Mike responds, Oh, bleep, explicative, explicative. My dad's going to kill me. I'm not supposed to have anybody in the car with me. Hurry up and get out <laughs> before the cops get here. And so Shane and I hop out, and we walk the rest of the way, the remaining mile to school, and have to tell Coach, who's going, hey, where's Mike at? Uh, he had some car trouble, kind of, sort of. He'll be here eventually, we think. Thankfully, Mike wasn't a starter on the team, but uh, every time I hear that song, I'm reminded of that fender bender I experienced in a car I wasn't supposed to be in before a, foot game, a football game we weren't supposed to win. <laughs> and so uh, that song, as you can just imagine, has a special place in my heart. The song Don't Worry, Be Happy was so popular, despite it sounding unlike anything else on the radio back then, it touched people, I think, in a special way because it hit on a topic that we all struggle with, anxiety and worry. However, struggling with anxiety is nothing new under the sun. Even God's people have struggled with it for millennia, including the believers at the church in Philippi. And so with that, we're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 4 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. I have a lot of content to share with you today that I hope will be very helpful. I want to encourage you to take notes, jot it down, because I think it will be very useful for you in the days ahead. Our theme verse for this series has been Philippians 4.4. 4. Uh, let's say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
The Apostle Paul has been telling us throughout this series that the secret to having outrageous joy is having the mind of Christ. Thinking like Christ set Paul free as he sat in prison. It set him free so that he could, in essence, say, I don't care about my personal comfort or what happens to me. So long as Jesus is glorified, God's word is proclaimed, and the gospel is spread, I'm good. It's also this kind of thinking that can enable Christ followers to be joyful, even when our circumstances and every ounce of our being is telling us to worry. And thus, our big idea for today is this. Thinking biblically can replace anxiety with serenity. Thinking biblically can replace anxiety with serenity. I want you to know I come to you today as somewhat of an expert on this topic. Anxiety is something that I have struggled with my entire life, and I have been fighting the battle of anxiety uh, ever since before I got saved, and since I got saved and then got into ministry, I've read tons of books, tons of journal articles, and have tried to learn everything I can to try and win the battle. Uh, But because my inherited sin nature still is with me, I'm still fighting the battle just like most of you. And so I I say that just to, to say I have not won the battle yet. I don't have everything figured out. And I am a brother in Christ that's fighting this battle along with most of you. Now, having said that, uh, thankfully, God's Word has plenty to say about anxiety, fear, and worry. This is because the Lord knows we all struggle with it. And I think that's why it's in His Word. And it's also not His will that we do it. He does not want us to be anxious, fearful, or worrisome. Further proof of this can be seen in what medical research has uncovered about the way anxiety affects the body that God made. Uh, For example, an abundance of studies have found anxiety causes rapid or irregular heart rate, chest pain, digestion problems, a weakened immune system, insomnia, depression, weakness, dizziness, and fatigue. The Harvard Medical Journal writes that those who struggle with chronic anxiety are several times more likely to suffer from digestion disorders or heart disease. In extreme cases, anxiety has been linked to panic attacks, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and many other phobias. A recent study found that one in six Americans, one in six of our entire population, are taking psychiatric prescription medication. 12% of Americans are using antidepressants, and 8.3% of Americans are on anti-anxiety or sleeping medications. So this is something that is widespread, that we all struggle with, and as I said earlier, thankfully God's Word has something to say about it. The Philippians were struggling with it as well. And so if you would look at the passage with me, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul says, and this is our key verse for the series, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here's the first truth of three 
truths that Paul's going to tell us about anxiety, and that is that, number one, hoping in the Lord can reduce anxiety. Hoping in the Lord can reduce anxiety. Rejoicing in the Lord says something in the immediate context of chapter 4 and in the broader context of the entire book. And here's what I mean by that. In the immediate context of chapter 4, rejoicing in the Lord could help the two estranged friends we learned about last week reconcile their relationships so they can worship the Lord with the rest of the church in unity. And it can also mean the reconciliation of two estranged church members is worthy of celebrating. So, so I definitely think verse 4 is connected to verses 2 and 3. But in the broader context of the entire book, verse 4 being our key verse, rejoicing in the Lord reinforces what Paul has been saying throughout the entire letter. And that is, his big idea is that our joy should not be based on our circumstances like it is for unbelievers. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. You may remember at the beginning of this series, I listed joy and rejoice as two key words that are used in this book. The noun joy and the verb imperative, the verbal imperative, rejoice, occur at least 13 times throughout this book. The apostles' command to rejoice in the Lord, that's worth noting, in the Lord, it's not only a reminder of where the focus of our joy should be, but it's also a reminder of where the power to do it comes from. We need the Lord's help. Because by default, with our inherited sin nature, we're kind of hardwired to let our joy depend on our circumstances. But, as I said earlier in this series, with the Lord's help, we can rejoice in him. But we need his help. Commentator G. Walter Hansen adds even more clarity to this command in verse 4 by explaining how our relationship with the Lord should be so central and, and determinative in our lives that all other factors cannot shake our sense of enthusiasm for him. Therefore, instead of rejoicing in circumstances that will change and people who will disappoint us and material possessions that won't last, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord in a God who will not change, in a God who will not disappoint us, and in an inheritance that will last forever. That's what Christ's followers have been given. And that's why it's better to rejoice in the Lord. Next, in verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness excuse me, be known to everyone. Some Bible translations render this as gentleness, it really means to have a patient forbearance with one another. Paul is most likely connecting the relational conflict from verse 3 to the imminent return of the Lord in verse 5. I would paraphrase it like this. Avoid nitpicking each other by bearing with one another so you're not caught bickering when Jesus comes back. That's what I think he's saying here. It shows some grace to each other. You know, it doesn't mean we condone sin or we 
we, we, we lower God's standards. He just, he's saying, you know, be reasonable with each other. Don't nitpick away and start fights you don't need to start because Jesus could return at any moment and you don't want to be caught fighting with each other about something that is not worth fighting over. Again, a tie back to the two sisters in verses 2 and 3 who were at odds. So, well then, when is the Lord returning? Well, verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Literally, the Lord is near. It's intended to be both a reminder to avoid foolish conflicts, kind of like um, when you were growing up, and I'm sure this is the case with my kids too, and it happened when I was growing up. You know, if you knew mom and dad were coming home, you kind of straightened up, stopped fighting, stopped breaking the rules because you heard the garage door opener kick in, and, and it was, oh, it just, <laughs> you had to make everything look like it always had been the way it's supposed to be. Well, it's kind of like Paul is saying, Jesus is coming back, and you don't want to be caught off guard doing things you shouldn't be doing. So be ready for him to return at any time. So, so it's, it's supposed to be a reminder to avoid foolish conflicts, but also to not give in to anxiety. Because when Jesus comes back, Paul's saying, you don't want to be found being anxious. Petty disagreements and fretting over things of this world all seem trivial when you consider the Lord coming down from the clouds with a trumpet sound and the rapture taking place. It kind of puts everything in a different perspective. The late 19th century Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers uh, connected the root of our anxieties and how hoping in the Lord can reduce them when he wrote this, all our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. All our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. So thinking biblically can replace anxiety with serenity. Next, look at verse 6 with me. So Paul continues, And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the second truth about anxiety that Paul wants us to know, and that is that praying to the Lord can relieve anxiety. Praying to the Lord can relieve anxiety. Verse 6 is a popular verse. It's probably the second most popular verse about anxiety and worry. The first, if we were to do a survey, would probably be Matthew chapter 6, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, says, do not worry a few times, and then ends up talking about seek first the kingdom of God. Well, here in, in verse 6, the root of the Greek word for anxious in the original text literally means to be pulled apart or to be drawn in different directions. It's written in what Greek scholars call the present imperative. Because Paul wanted them to stop doing something they were already doing, 
It literally reads, stop being anxious. Stop being pulled apart in different directions. The New Testament makes a distinction between concern and anxiety. I, I want to make sure make, make this clear because this can get a little fuzzy. One is sinful and the other is not. Concern is not sinful because it is diligently caring for your responsibilities. Uh, for example, in Philippians 2.20, you might remember Paul said, hey, I'm going to send Timothy back to visit you guys in Philippi, and he is, quote, genuinely, genuinely, excuse me, concerned for you, or he will genuinely care for you. That's a good thing. Paul was saying Timothy's good at that. And in 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul references his daily concern for all the churches that he's helped plant. That's a good thing, too, because Paul felt responsible as the lead apostle back then. Now, on the other hand, anxiety or worry is sinful because it is the distrust of God and rejection of his providence in our lives. You might want to write that down because you might wonder, why is it sinful again? Because it is the distrust of God and the rejection of his providence in our lives. For example, in Matthew 6, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus says three times to not be anxious about material things and instead says, seek first the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6, 33, sometimes sinful anxiety manifests itself as frustration that God is not doing what we want him to do when we want him to do it. However, at its root, frustration is our unwillingness to submit and accept the circumstances the Lord has allowed in our lives. Thus, when we are anxious, frustrated, or worried, we need to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness so we can get back to trusting Him again. He sees, the Lord sees, anxiousness as unbelief. Now notice how the Apostle's simple solution in verse 6, how it kind of sums up, uh, be anxious about nothing, and then notice how he says, but pray about everything. Be anxious about nothing, but pray about everything. Now, he gives practical instructions on how to pray, and here's letter, letters A, B, C, A, B, and C on your outline. Uh, he says, when you pray, A, intercede for others. Intercede for others. I know it's not explicit in the text, but by prayer and supplication, the word for prayer that's used here in the original text often refers to intercessory prayer for others. Interceding for others can help relieve anxiety in at least two ways. First, it shifts the focus that we often have on ourselves off of ourselves. It gets us praying for someone else. That the Lord bless them. 
I know, I'm, I, I know I struggle with that. I can easily spend all day just praying about my own needs. And it's good for me to pray for others. It's good for me to write down prayer requests or to put a reminder in my phone to pray for someone or to have the Spirit remind me so that I'm not self-centered in my prayers. But another benefit of interceding for others is that if it's another person that we're worried about, for example, a spouse traveling, maybe a child, uh, or a friend, interceding for them is a means by which we can offload the burden or anxiety we feel for them back onto the Lord. So if your spouse is traveling and you're a little worried because the weather report's looking bad, by interceding for your spouse as they travel, you're giving them back to the Lord. Or maybe it's a child who's away from the Lord. By interceding for them, you're releasing them back to him, turning them over to him. Here, Lord, I can't fix this. You reach him, Lord. I've done all I can do. So A, intercede for others. Next, Paul says, B, submit, request. Notice supplication. And then he says, let your request be made known. There are some people who feel guilty or afraid to take their needs to the Lord. But not only does the Lord encourage us to bring our needs to him, in doing so, it acknowledges our total dependence on him, which he loves. When we go to him and say, Lord, I can't make it through today without you. Lord, if you don't show up at this meeting, man, I am shipwrecked. Please help me. The Lord's like, fantastic. I was wondering how long it was going to take you to come to me and ask for help. Let's go. I'm ready to bless and move on your behalf. And next, letter C, Paul says, give thanks. With thanksgiving, offer up these prayers. This can include thanking him for the privilege of prayer. This can include thanking him for past answers to prayer or thanking him in advance for the answer he's going to give you. So intercede for others, submit requests, give thanks. Paul says doing these things, praying in this way, can help with anxiety. What's the benefit of taking our anxieties to the Lord? Well, Man, verse 7, it gets even better. Look at verse 7. In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, don't miss this, what loved ones. When he says the peace of God, he's referring to the peace that God has. As he rules the universe. Did you know that God never gets anxious? Never worries. He's never afraid that somebody might knock him off his throne or that something he wants done maybe won't happen. So unlike us, the Lord never frets or worries about things, about how things will work out. And when we pray, as Paul is instructed, we don't receive a short-lived, superficial peace from man. Instead, Paul's saying, no, we get a long-lasting, supernatural peace from God. Jesus said something similar in John 14. You might when you jot that down in your margin, you can look it up later. John 14, verse 27, when the disciples were starting to panic or, in more modern terms, freak out. It was the night before Jesus was to be arrested and crucified. Jesus says, peace 
I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. So, so what, what's Jesus saying there to his disciples? I can give you the peace that I have right now, knowing I'm going to be falsely accused, put on a trial that's a joke, arrested, crucified, and go through an incredible amount of pain. And even some of you are going to abandon me. And Jesus was saying in John 14, 7, I still have peace. He's not worried. He's not fretting. Of course, that begs the question, if Jesus can have peace, knowing what was coming for him on that Passion Week, certainly we can have peace too. Oh, and this peace, it gets even better. Not only is it a peace that God has, he's willing to share with us, Paul says it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Just in case we missed how special this peace is, it's available to us, to those who have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The apostle just adds a superlative here, and it's a fascinating one. It's a peace that is so great, Paul says. It exceeds, in the Greek text, it exceeds the, it's a unique word that Paul uses. It means it exceeds, it goes way beyond, outside the reach of human understanding. His peace is so great, humans can't even wrap their brains around it. The peace that God has and is willing to give is beyond the reach of our understanding, just like the edge of space. Anytime a human starts thinking, hmm, I wonder how far you can go out there in space before you finally hit a wall or something. I don't know, I just can't calculate. Synapses start short-circuiting, and that's what the peace of God is like, Paul's saying. Incomprehensible. The promise that this peace of God will guard our hearts and minds, oh, this is fascinating too, it was inspired by the presence of a Roman garrison inside Philippi, tasked with keeping the peace of Rome in the city. There's a fort inside the city. So Paul uses language here, the guard your hearts, that's a military term, and he's basically using the word picture of that fort inside the city of Philippi that was established there to help maintain control of that territory. Paul's going, yeah, you know that big fort that has the full power of the super empire of Rome behind it? Yeah, well, God's peace is even stronger than that. Even though the peace inside the city was achieved by the military might and planning of the Roman Empire, which was really brilliant, and it still is, Paul's saying it still doesn't even come close to the peace that God provides. Now, I must admit from personal experience that this supernatural peace is sometimes hard to catch, hard to get, and it... I think it's because, and I'm learning this in my own walk with the Lord, it's possible 
to go into the Lord's throne room with anxieties and walk out of his throne room still holding on to them. And so this kind of prayer that Paul's talking about, in order to get the, the result or the fruit of the byproduct of it, the peace of God, it really requires something that is so simple but so difficult at the same time. And that is us being able to approach the Lord in prayer, entering his throne room, and to release the anxieties. And I'm just telling you, I struggle with it. Sometimes I have to, I'll just admit, um, I'm more anxious after I pray. And I have to go back and pray some more. Because in praying, I start thinking about the things I'm worried about even more. I'm still learning there. The German reformer Philip Melanchthon so valued prayer that he actually feared losing his anxieties, lest he would lose the blessed relief of prayer. He once said, if I had no anxieties, I should lose a powerful incentive to prayer. Trouble compels me to pray, and prayer drives away trouble. So I read that last night, and I went, well, that's just pretty convicting. That guy doesn't want a comfortable life because he sees having a comfortable life as hurting his prayer life, so he wants to have a hard life, so he becomes better at prayer. That's convicting. I can't just let that sit there on the page of this book I'm looking at. I need to share that with the people of Vanguard tomorrow so they can feel convicted with me. Because what he's really saying is that he knows his own sin nature. When life is easy, we don't pray as much. But when life gets hard, man, we press in and get really close to the Lord, don't we? We don't want to go two minutes without him. So, so how's that for having a sober understanding of your own sin nature? Uh, I actually like having trouble because trouble keeps me praying. So he saw his troubles as good. Because he knew he would pray less if he didn't have them. Thinking biblically can replace anxiety with serenity. And praying to the Lord can and should relieve anxiety. Next, look at verse, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, Paul, just like a good preacher, he, I think he's used finally a couple times in the last two chapters, and then he just kind of you think he's landing the plane, and, well, he's just got more to say. So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Here's number three in your outline. Thinking like the Lord can prevent anxiety. There's a way to be proactive. Thinking like the Lord can prevent anxiety. So instead of taking the passive approach to anxiety, Paul urges us to be proactive. 
with our thought life. So instead of waiting until we become anxious to change our thinking, the apostle says we should practice biblical thinking all the time. Now, the word think here is really interesting because it's, I originally thought, I, I thought it would be phroneo showing up again, but then when I dug in and looked at my commentaries and, and Greek resources, it's a different word, logizomai, think about these things. It means, it, it comes from a, a Greek word that means to calculate, to count, or to compute. Now, although the word captures the focus that goes into calculating and counting, the intent is actually stronger. Greek scholars call this verb form, think about these things. They call it the present middle imperative. Here's what that means. It's a command to form the habit of intentional biblical thought for our own good. It's a command to form the habit of intentional biblical thought for our own good. And to do it without delay. Imperatives are commands. The present means do it now. And the middle voice means, in Greek, in, in Greek grammar, it means that the subject performs the verb on themselves for their own benefit. Some translations render this, center your mind, or fix your minds on all these virtues that Paul lists. So Paul, he's told us in his own words multiple times throughout the letter, and you've heard me mention it, that how we think determines how we feel. And it is God's will that we lead our emotions instead of letting our emotions lead us. You see, the world says they are victims of their own emotions. I can't help it. I just feel this way. There's just nothing I can do. I fell out of love with you. I don't know what happened. It's the world's way of saying I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable. Don't blame me for anything. But God's word says, oh, yeah, you are. Yes, you can change. And it starts with changing your thought life. So what's this look like? Well, believers who have trained themselves to have the mind of Christ genuine, excuse me, generally have less anxiety. That's why it's so important. So what does this look like? Well, here, here's a couple practical examples. It means the believer who starts to feel anxious about the Lord abandoning them can stop those thoughts by reciting Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. And because that believer already knows that verse, they're able to recite it and kick those doubts out of their mind. Or, say a believer who begins to doubt whether the Lord will provide for their financial need. They're able to replace those thoughts with, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Matthew 6, 8. Or it means the believer who's wondering how God could bring good out of a painful loss, they're able to just simply recite Romans 8, 28, and 29. Not just 28, but 29 as well, because they go together. We know that 
For those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 29, conforming them to the image of his son. Thus, anxiety never has a chance to take root because the believer who thinks biblically knows that God is working all things together for good so they become more like Christ, not so they become more comfortable. That's critical because if you think God's plan for your life is just to make you more happy and pamper you and make you more comfortable, you will continually be disappointed when the Lord doesn't do it. Because he has a totally different game plan for you, which is to make you more like his son. Oh, and A.W. Tozer in his book, The Crucified Life, oh, drives this home when he wrote, If we understand that everything happening to us is to make us more Christ-like, it will solve a great deal of anxiety in our lives. Now, although most examples of anxiety are sinful and caused by unbiblical thinking, there are a few instances in which anxiety actually has a physiological cause. This is rare, it's not as common, but I wanted to mention it before we move on to our applications. And I wanted to mention it because just from my own research over the years, uh, and even some of my own health struggles, I've learned there are some things that can make us more anxious that are physiological in nature, even though you may be doing your very best to apply biblical principles. And so uh, I just wanted to mention these to you so that if you have been trying to honor the Lord and not be anxious, and you're still struggling with that, you may want to look at one of these physiological causes. Uh, poor diet. If you have a poor diet, it leads to nutritional deficiencies. Uh, one, for example, that I know I had personally experienced is when I took gluten out of my diet years ago because I developed a gluten allergy. Well, one of the things that gluten and grains has is magnesium. Magnesium helps calm the body. And when we get deficient in magnesium, we get irritable and anxious. So that's just one example of many I could give you. Uh, thyroid problems. Uh, when the thyroid's not working right, it can cause irritability or an anxiousness, edginess. Side effects from certain medications, digestion problems, hormone imbalances, food allergies, diabetes, to just name a few. So this sets up our first of three applications that I have, and that is, uh, number one, uh, first, Address the spiritual first, then the physiological. And here's what I mean by that. The single biggest mistake I see Christians do when they're struggling with anxiety is being too quick to run to their medical doctor for a quick fix with a pill. That does not mean taking medication for anxiety is bad or sinful. There are some people that do need it, but as talented as medical doctors are, they are not trained to look for spiritual causes to emotional problems. 
The tragic result is thousands of professing Christians are taking psychotropic drugs and living with the side effects of those drugs when they wouldn't need to if they would have looked at their walk with the Lord first. This then stunts their spiritual growth that they could have achieved if they had first sought godly counsel from God's word for their struggle with anxiety and learned how to change their thinking. And again, as I said earlier, there are some people that do this, but then find out later they have a physiological issue that requires the help of some medication, and that's okay. But my point is, if you just run to the pill quick and give me a pill, just fix it for me, I just want to feel better right away without actually dealing with your bad theology, you're short-circuiting your walk with the Lord. You're stunting your spiritual growth. And so when I counsel those who are struggling with anxiety, I first work on teaching them what the scriptures have to say about anxiety and fear and God's sovereignty and God's promises. Then if that's not working over time and they're just not seeing any progress, but they were putting all the work in, all the effort to grow spiritually, I encourage them to go see their doctor for a physical and some blood work and tests, etc., to see if there's an underlying health problem. Next, second application, discern your circles of concern. Another way to get relief from anxiety is to learn the difference between what the Lord holds you responsible for and what he does not. I'd like to encourage you to draw a small circle on your sermon note handout. I tried to give you some room to do this, but draw a small circle like the one you see here on the keynote screen behind me, and then draw another larger circle around it, sort of making like a target or concentric circles. Inside the inner circle, or you can maybe draw an arrow to it like you see on the screen, write, my God-given responsibilities, and then write, I must obey. So the smaller circle represents what God wants me to do and what I need to obey on. So this could be things like my health, my spiritual life, my family, time decisions, priorities. Next, when you draw the bigger circle around it, label that one not my responsibility. And I must trust. The larger circle represents things that you can be concerned about, but you're not responsible for. And there's a big difference. So the larger circle would include things like politics, uh, uh, state of the union, friend problems, friend, your friend's problems, uh, struggles with adult children. They've moved out of the house, they're struggling. Those of you that have adult kids, you know it takes great wisdom to know how much do we help versus not enabling. What, what, how do, what do we do? We want to support and encourage, but we also need to let them struggle a little bit because they're now grown up. The, the point of the exercise, though, here in drawing these circles is to sort the things in your life that you are concerned about into one circle and the things that you are responsible for that you can control into the other circle. 
And after this list is narrowed down, you can then begin to apply the scriptures to the responsibilities God has given you. So there are things we can be concerned about, but are not our responsibility. And then there are other things that we are in charge of, and we need to obey the Lord. Finally, number three, the third application, develop a robust understanding of God's character. Develop a robust understanding of God's character. Nearly every reputable book that has ever been written in church history on the topic of anxiety or fear or trust concludes, every, every solid biblical book, they all say the same thing. I can save you money from reading all of them. They all say the same thing. The antidote to anxiety is studying God's character. More specifically, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, his love, his holiness, and his overall plan for his children. And this is done by studying the scriptures, memorizing verses, and praying verses related to these topics. You can read some real good books, and I can recommend some, that are written by trusted biblical counselors. There's some great ones out there. And you can, if you want help walking through how to do this, chapter by chapter, there's a great one in the worship folder by uh, Dr. Ed Welch that I recommend. Uh, and there's a few others I can recommend if you send me an email. But in essence, all they're doing is they're taking theology about God's character and showing you how it applies to the things you worry about in your life and why you shouldn't worry anymore. Well, in 1653, Bolstrode Whitelock was appointed prime minister, excuse me, he was appointed by the prime minister of England to be the first ambassador to Sweden. That prime minister was Oliver Cromwell. On the night before Mr. Whitelock was to depart for Sweden, his mind was so troubled about the state of the Union in Great Britain, and his country was just in political turmoil at the time, he couldn't sleep. And so a confidential servant who slept in a nearby bed happened to notice that his master was restless. And so the servant tried to comfort Whitelock by asking him a series of questions. So the servant says, Sir, may I ask you a question? And Whitelock says, Certainly. Do you believe God governed the world well before you came into it? To which Whitelock answered, Well, undoubtedly. Sir, do you think that God will govern the world well after you have gone out of it. To which Ambassador Whitelock said, well, well, certainly. Well then, sir, pardon my asking, but don't you think you can trust him to govern it well as long as you are in it? After this question, the ambassador had no answer. He turned over in his bed. He quickly fell asleep, and he did not wake until he was summoned to embark the next morning. I share this story with you as just another example of how to apply God's word to our fears. That's all the servant did. The servant took 
theology, turned it into a question, and it was theology that he knew, his master already knew, being churchmen, and he just, he just helped his master apply what he already knew about God. Is God still in control? Well, yeah, certainly. Was God in control before you got here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is he going to be in control after you get out here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Thus, our big idea. Thinking biblically can replace anxiety with serenity. The solution to our anxiety is not as simple as don't worry, but at least it's less difficult than just be happy. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we've gained a deeper understanding this morning of why you call us sheep. We are easily rattled. We are timid. We are gullible and naive. But Lord, we thank you that by your spirit and by your grace, with the help of your word, we can grow in our confidence and our knowledge of you. Father, I just want to ask that you would please reveal this morning to those who are struggling with anxiety but don't know it, help them see it. Because I, I know in my own life, Lord, I have realized that my sin nature, my depravity is so widespread that sometimes I am anxious and I don't even know I'm anxious or can't admit it. And so, Lord, I'm just assuming there might be others here that struggle with that too. And Father, for those who do know they struggle with anxiety, please, would you, would you help them to take steps towards serenity, peace with you, would you, would you help them to find what seems to be so elusive, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Help us, Lord, by your grace and by your spirit, to grasp it, to, to get it, so that we can be different than this unbelieving world that we live in, is so fraught with fear. Help us, Lord, as, as, as your people to be so at peace that unbelievers might look at us and go, why are you not panicking? Why are you not anxious about what's going on in your life? So that it would give us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Father, we just want to admit that because of our inherited sin nature and because we are sheep, there is some supernatural work that needs to happen in combination with our own efforts to gain victory here. So please, Lord, would you do your part as we do our part of learning the scriptures, memorizing them, praying them, and applying them to our fears. Help us, Lord, to do that by faith. 
We love you and we thank you for caring for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.